I guess I was fighting against how sad I felt inside by outwardly trying to be the most fun person to be around. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Hello and welcome. This is Bob Bach. Uh, we are in our studio in West Bend, Wisconsin, and our guest today is Ben Singleton. Ben joined the Army after high school. He trained as a paratrooper served with the 82nd Airborne Division, and later as a sniper with the 4th Infantry Division of the Army. He served two tours in Iraq as an infantryman, re-enlisted twice, and served just under seven years before leaving as a staff sergeant. Ben's had several occupations, as uh, including as a remodeling contractor, and today he is the manager of what's called a therapeutic riding center, it's called Heaven's Gate Ranch. It's located about 35 miles north of Milwaukee. And among its offerings are activities for veterans and individuals with uh, special needs. Ben, it's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let's start, as we often do, with um, where you grew up and, of course, uh, the uh, happenstance and circumstance of what led you to um, join the Army. I was uh, born in northwest Indiana. I uh, grew up in a little town called Boone Grove. It was uh, a small farming community. <clears throat> no stoplights. No commercial businesses. Uh, but not that far outside of Chicago. So a lot of the things that uh, a city of that size offered were available to me. And uh, I consider it a pretty great place to grow up. Now... Uh you enlisted in the Army, is that correct? I was a high school senior on 9-11, and uh, the first plane hit, and they turned the TVs on in, in class, and the perception was that there was some kind of, of accident, uh, some kind of misunderstanding, and I watched the second plane hit, and my mind changed in that moment. I knew that... The implications of that were war. And I knew instantaneously that I was going to war and that I was going to exact some for rent, some revenge on whoever just perpetrated that on us. It was my generation's Pearl Harbor. Had you yeah. grown up with um, patriotic thoughts and, and such and so? I always played soldier. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that was my thing. Uh, I always had an interest in history. I think in my mind, I was always a soldier. I always wanted to be someone that defended people. And I wanted to defend myself, too. I, I'm dyslexic, and reading and writing were, are a huge challenge for me. And uh, as children do, they'll notice that kind of thing, and they'll, they'll pick on you. And... That helped foster some of my warrior spirit, and it's something I'm grateful for now. It's not something I'd change. Uh, How about family? Brothers, sisters, mom, dad? I've got a younger brother named Jesse, proud graduate of Purdue University, Boilermakers. 
uh, very, very smart man, very caring. He, uh, he works in education, and he's got a similar type of service mindset. My father was a union iron worker. My grandfather was a union cement mason. And that kind of workman mentality is in me. And my mother is a very intelligent lady who interacts with people in a, a very caring kind of way. And I think that's a lot of my spirit. Were they happy to see you join uh, the service or, or fearful for your enlistment? Before 9-11, my father had talked to me about joining the service. He said, you know, is this something you think you want to do? I could see this being a, a path for you. And it had always been on my mind. I think after 9-11 is when they became concerned because now it's a reality that your son's going to war. And it took a great toll on my mother and my brother and my father. You know, it was in the abstract until it was happening. Mm -hmm. It didn't take very long for me to go from training to combat. I did my basic training in Fort Benning, Georgia. I went home for a leave over Christmas. Went back down to Georgia in January, did airborne school, which was great. Um, I love running and singing and <laughs> jumping and that kind of thing. And it just fit me. I what was to, it What was it about that that uh, made it feel so comfortable for you? Was it the camaraderie of uh, your fellow uh, soldiers or the, the faith or trust you might have had in your leadership or uh, a whole combination of things? I, en I enjoy like team-based activities that also have an emphasis on the individual. For instance, I was a high school wrestler. So you're a part of a team, but there's that moment where you're in the middle of the mat and, it, and it's you versus someone else, and there's going to be an outcome. Um, and I think the Army is a lot like that. I was definitely a member of a team, but there was also an onus on your individual performance. And something like going to airborne school and getting your wings and separating yourself from your peers a little bit more, that's what I was looking for. Um, so I'm part of, a, you know, the biggest gang in the world, but I'm also, you know, allowed to try to succeed on my own. And you're a teenager. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. 18. Just like a rocket. Mm -hmm. Ready to go. Ready to get out of the small town, too. As much as I loved it, nope, I'm, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that ticket out. So the time comes that you deploy to Iraq, but actually to Kuwait, wasn't it? Uh, to to uh, stage prior to uh, the invasion? So in 2003, I graduated airborne school. I spent a week in 82nd Airborne Replacement at Fort Bragg. I was assigned to the 325th, or I was assigned to 1st Battalion, 325th Infantry Bravo Company. Uh, I showed up. And they said, well, they didn't say, they told me, we don't have a 60-millimeter mortar uh, assistant gunner. So the guy that carries the uh, the base plate and the rounds and the aiming uh, devices and that kind of thing, the, the humper. So now I went from being an infantryman to an infantryman who's a mortarman, picking it up on the fly because you couldn't deploy without that uh, that was it was a mission essential uh, soldier. So I spent one week at Fort Bragg, and then we left for Kuwait to stage for the 2003 invasion. I don't know something I want to share with you is I remember vividly. I'd only been there for again it was there for a week, and they gave me desert camouflage uniform when everybody else was still wearing the BDUs, the greens. Mm. And I'm at the uh, the Airborne PX on a uh, on a, a payphone calling home in in my desert camouflage, telling my mom uh, I can't tell you where I'm going, but I'm leaving mm. because of operational security. We didn't want to to let the Iraqis know that we were deploying an airborne unit to to be ready. And a guy I was in replacement with comes walking by. His, his BDUs, his greens, and I'm wearing camouflage. I just remember the look on his face <laughs> that this guy's gone. You know, like, mm -hmm. um, 
but the big yeah the big joke is we were going to the Bahamas or we're going to we're going on spring break you know like <laughs> spring break Kuwait so I spent uh, a good almost two months in Kuwait training for the invasion and I can't imagine a better way for a young private to start his military service than to be continuously around his platoon and to learn his job and that everything you're doing is going to have a purpose in the immediate future. It's like a fireman training to fight a fire, but you know that a building's catching fire at the end of it. Like you're going into that, that building I'm walking into it. So operating the radio and the gas mask and different tasks. Well, hell, I didn't know how to shoot a mortar. I wasn't a mortarman, but I'm learning it and I'm focused and having that kind of well, stepping back, 9-11 gave me incredible clarity about where my life was going when I was 18. I wasn't capable of going to college and I could have joined a trade union and uh, I enjoyed cooking. I was a pretty good chef, but all those roads would have been still me learning how to be a man and deciding things on my own. Whereas in the army and invading Iraq, everything was pretty well set out for me on, on my path. Um, and I think I, I, I know I enjoyed that clarity of, of being young and having a laser focused kind of, uh, direction. Did you have a lot of trust in your leadership, do you recall? I did. Um, my drill sergeants, my first platoon sergeant, my first sergeant, they were all Gulf War veterans. And I hold Gulf War veterans in very high esteem. I think the term 100-hour war uh, has a negative connotation, and to me it has a positive connotation, as in we whipped their fucking ass that fast. And growing up and seeing that on the TV... I'm walking into Iraq, cocksure as fuck. Um, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm not afraid of Saddam. You know, there's, there's definitely this prevailing gnawingness in the back of your brain that chemical weapons could be unleashed in you at any time. But even, okay, we're in Kuwait. Uh, we were at uh, Kuwait International Airport because we were going to jump into Baghdad International Airport as part of the invasion and they start shooting scuds in Kuwait and we'd go out and we put our gas masks on and get in the bunker. But honestly, there was a part of me that wasn't even intimidated by that because I know we're going to shoot that shit down. We're America. They're fine. You know, they're using old Russian bullshit. We're fine. You know, I remember, yeah, I remember my first sergeant saying, uh, you know, you guys are worried about chemical weapons. They're, uh, their protective gear looks like the stuff you wear in the rain. Don't worry about it, you know. Like, and it kind of bared out when I when I got into country and saw what the Iraqi military was outfitted with. We we were wiping the floor with them. How long were you actually engaged in uh, combat in Iraq in that first deployment? Well, uh, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Is in like because uh, well every day. But also, combat isn't something that happens every day. Mm -hmm. The shooting part of the war can be very brief, and you know it's not usually a long, protracted engagement battle. You know, battle. I've only had one kind of pitch battle. Well, that's not true. Uh, a pitch battle is pretty rare, um, and the enemy's main tactic is ambushes and that kind of thing. Sometimes there's not even somebody there to shoot back at, but there are, there are just days and, and hours in my mind where it was on. We were shooting. Sure. We were getting a hold of them. They, you know, they were doing their best to get a hold of us. And we had moments where we got a hold of them. So due to a lot of factors, we did not wind up, uh, jumping into, Baghdad, a sandstorm, and the invasion kind of slowed, and uh, Jessica Lynch got um, captured. 
And so our mission changed, and we wound up going in um, first by plane and then by truck into a place called Asamawa, which is uh, the largest Christian town in Iraq. And the insurgents, and this is in southern Iraq, so we were behind the line of advance, and the Iraqis were doing um, hit-and-run ambushes on our fuel, our water, our soft targets, uh, the convoy. So we went in to fight those irregular fighters that had chosen to come to Asamawa and fight. One, because it's a Christian town and you don't shit where you eat. Um, so they didn't mind screwing up that town. So we took some, some trucks, some deuce and a half, some five tons, and we unloaded outside of the city and we started to push in through what proved to be a garbage dump into uh, the outlier of the city in a, a very massive um, cement factory. And the enemy ambushed us as we were coming into the city. And with RPGs and machine guns and mortars. And uh, that was the really only day of my life that was like a movie. Mm-hmm. Where... The bullets are flying. Thank God to the Kiowa pilots who came in with their helicopters and started unleashing some some missiles. We didn't have heavy armor support. We had Humvees with, uh, you know, 50 cals. And there weren't even a lot of those. Uh, and we were firing and maneuvering on our enemy. And um, that was very real, very quick. And that woke... That was my first taste of combat. Was was pretty much the first thing I did in Iraq was the most major event of my my service. How long did that deployment in Iraq last? We were deployed for a total of a year. Okay. And uh, I remember guys were thinking, you know, up until then, the guys in Afghanistan had only been there for six months. And people were talking about, like, we're going to go home, you know, they're going to redeploy us to Afghanistan. And I'm no, we're going to be here for a year. And I think in my mind, that was a little bit of a rev, you know, Vietnam resonating back there. I'm like, I'm going to be here for a year. I know it. Like this talk of we're going home, it's not happening. We got to, you know, we got to, now we're occupying, you know, we, we pushed to Baghdad by that point. I knew we were going to be there for quite a long time. If you don't mind, I, I want to reference uh, also um, the 325 was the first regular army unit to go to uh, Fallujah. And I don't think we really knew what we were doing. Uh, Fallujah is a incredibly Bathist uh, sectarian place, and we took uh, helicopters in there and uh, hit the ground. And almost immediately, well, immediately, you could feel the seething sense of hate from the populace that was different than what you, I seen in uh, Samoa. Um, those people resented our presence in taking over their nation. Uh, we weren't liberators to them. The people in Samoa saw us as liberators. We were invaders to them. And we went into town. We, we commandeered a, a truck, got in the back of it, and rolled in and took down the Bathist headquarters. And everybody wanted an Iraqi flag, you know, a war trophy. And... We take down the building, and then there's a race to get to the top to take down the Iraqi flag. And it's coming down, and then the people that had gathered outside, there was thousands of them, uh, started to to react to that flag coming down, and with a seething sense of anger. And I remember our company commander, you know, saying, "Put it back up, put it back up, put the flag back up," and that was almost. The only thing we could do from keeping those people from rushing the gate. And um, we were just surrounded by hate. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, that's where I, I grew up. I really changed in Fallujah. I'm going to fast forward here a little bit, Ben. You served a second deployment in Iraq. Is that correct? 
Uh, that's correct. And, and how did that compare with the first? I like to think of, uh, so Operation Iraqi Freedom is broken into phases. I was there for Operation, or for OIF-1. That's almost a completely different war to me than when I went back in OIF-4. I To use an analogy, um, after we'd secured the country and were actively policing it, the insurgency was at, let's say, a street gang level of uh, organization. And when I went back in 2005, 2006, they were at a cartel level wow. of organization and funding and their capabilities, they'd also refined their high-percentage weapon, the improvised explosive device. It had become much more terrifying, and it was much more difficult for boots on the ground to combat than a uniformed enemy standing at us. And, you know, we've got tanks, and, we've you know, we're the greatest military in the world. And I don't blame them for not fighting us face to face. I wouldn't do it. Um, they had refined that to such a deadly level that it was just a completely different war. It was a completely different Iraq. They were, we weren't seen as the liberators anymore. We were the, the occupier. Everybody, well, I wouldn't say everybody. I can't speak for everyone, but uh, the military had, had begun fatiguing. Our, our op tempo had started to take its toll. More soldiers are on their their second tour, and I was I was afraid of those IEDs. Um, I didn't want to go driving around looking for them. So what can I do? Well, there's openings in the sniper platoon. I'd rather hunt than be hunted. Um, and that led me to really uh, my desire to kill went through the roof. My desire to protect American lives, to save my own life, it amplified. Um, I don't also want to make myself out to be some kind of super soldier. I, I haven't killed people in the double digits. I'm not, I'm an average person still. But the ways we would... Let me move on to this for just a moment. I, I was struck by the fact that you served... Uh, Little less than seven years, is that right? That's correct. And made made the rank of staff sergeant. I, I'm chuckling because uh, uh, for those folks that may not have any military background, to make E6 or staff sergeant in seven years is is pretty good. Is a pretty good rate of promotion. So, uh, were you thinking, hmm, you know, if I stay in, I might be looking at uh, E8 or E9, a first sergeant or master sergeant, or I mean, really a high a senior, what they call a senior non-commissioned officer rank here, and, and for whom uh, the military can be not necessarily cushy, but just something of a comfortable life. Were you, were you thinking about sticking around? I love the Army. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you get up, you go work out, you get some breakfast, get an hour and a half lunch break. <laughs> it's not so bad. <laughs> no. you know, like, no, when nobody liked was... Uh, when it was quitting time, it seemed like it always got pushed back 45 minutes and nobody knew why because, you know, they were talking in the office and, hey, let us go. But the military life suited me and I was making good money. I really thought I was a lifer for a time and a combination of my stress level affecting my job performance, my supervisors or my, you know, my, my, my chain of command for the first time in my military career was crap. The Army offered me nothing to re-enlist. Nothing. When I re-enlisted the first time to go from Fort Bragg to Fort Carson, they gave me ten grand and station of choice. Wow. You know, and I said, all right, I want to go back to Iraq anyways. Let's go. When I was going to get out, they wouldn't even offer me stabilization at Fort Lewis. They said, you'll sign an e a need to the Army contract for no money, or you, or you can get out. And uh, for me, as an E6 with no Ranger tab, I said, that's a one-way ticket to be a recruiter. And nobody wanted to be a recruiter. <laughs> it's tough duty, but also, no, I'm a, I'm a hard charger. I'm an infantryman. I'm not a salesman. I want to keep doing what I'm doing. 
So in a lot of ways, I, I feel like they, uh, they were preparing for a force reduction, and that had a lot to do with not offering me squat. Also, the uh, in two thousand eight, the economy was in the dumper, mm-hmm. so that's part of it. Um, so I decided, hey, let's let's get out, let's go to college, let's try it. I had somewhat of a plan, was, you know, a concept, but really, I was just thinking, I'm going to go party. <laughs> I'm going to get back some of that time lost. I'm going to, you know, rip it up. Mm-hmm. You know, live for the guys that aren't able to do it. Mm-hmm kind of a that fallacy we tell ourselves that I can, you know, drink and drink and drink and drink and it's because, you know, somebody else is dead. That's bullshit. <clears throat> a couple of minutes ago, uh, we were chatting and uh, you took a few moments to um, collect yourself and, and uh, visibly it, it was evident to me and, and uh, certainly auditorially because of the silence that something had come up, something had kind of flushed upward. And I'm assuming that it was one or perhaps a combination of, uh, of hard memories. Is that what happened? It was. And also uh, it was, and also trying to articulate something that I can't communicate to anyone, what it was like and what it was like to pull that trigger and what, to look through that glass and make an interpretation on what somebody's doing when I'm looking through my scope at someone hundreds of meters away and trying to decide, okay, are they are they placing an IED or are they just pulled over on the side of the road looking at their engine? And having that godlike power is strange to a human being. Mm-hmm. These feelings, which are, needless to say, complicated, and... Um, I often think of them looking back at my own experience that, man, what a tangle. I mean, there's, where, where do you start to, what thread do you start to pull on that's going to lead you to some clear conclusion uh, when you're trying to reconcile the memories of what you experienced and perhaps your own actions, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I'm wondering for you, how did you, uh, first, it's a two-part question. Did you recognize a need to begin to reconcile some of your feelings after you had been home for a while? And if you did recognize a need to do that, how did you go about doing it? Well, I wouldn't say I recognized anything for a long time. I would say I thought releasing it through the bar, through just, you know, being out with my uh, my comrades and kind of bullshitting, I thought that was going to let it out. And in some ways it did. In some ways I, I, you know, not everything stayed bottled, but it wasn't a healthy activity either. No, I, I didn't realize that I had as much work to do as, as I do. What led you to that realization and when did that happen? I got a DUI and I needed to get some court ordered counseling and that sent me to the vet center so I could get it for free. Hopefully <laughs> that's how I got started is uh court ordered um and uh in retrospect you know it was a gift did you find the vet center useful i did my first uh vet center counselor was a marine uh combat medic and he was very blunt and he laid some facts out for me and he was the voice i needed in that moment to tell me this is real this is serious this is the way you are this is who you're going to be, and you need to accept it and look it right in the eye. And I needed to hear that. I also participated in some uh, groups and some, some circle work. And uh, just spending time around veterans is calming to almost all veterans, I would say. Of course, group work requires, uh, ironically, <laughs> you're, you're, you're in a circle of strangers who, true, may be veterans, but uh, so there's an esprit de corps there, I think, just naturally, uh, and, and maybe a sense of uh, togetherness. But nonetheless, you now are, are faced with needing to trust people that you've never met. Is that right? Absolutely. And how'd you do that? 
Well, if anything, at first it started with, uh, what was your job in the military? How close do you understand what I did? Uh, what part of country were you in? Do you know, do you know where I've been? And it, I found it to be pretty easy to connect with, with veterans and, and, uh, there's something about the, the shorthand that happens that I don't have to over explain this part of what I'm talking about. I can just talk to you and you get the basics at least of, of what I'm saying. And, uh, I get to experience a little bit of that part of me that was in the military cause I can speak to you like that. So I kind of, you access that, that memory and then you, you give it away a little bit too. Was it that involvement with the vet center that, uh, in a way, became a catalyst for you to continue to do more work of looking inside yourself? So my second vet center counselor may have saved my life. His name's John Christensen. He's a Vietnam veteran, affectionately known as Yoda. He kept telling me about this program called Healing Warrior Hearts. And, you know, at first it kind of sounded kooky. I was... Resistant to it, resistant to it, resistant. No, no, I, you know, I don't got time. Not this weekend. Not this weekend. And I, um, well, I'll tell you what happened. I was on Brady Street down here in Milwaukee, uh, hanging out with my rugby teammates, and I uh, went outside the bar to catch my uh, Uber home. And three guys got out of an SUV and beat the shit out of me. Mm. Put me in the hospital. I woke up to my mother. Um, my father drove up from Florida. I was, I had a bad head injury. They, they, I either, they either hit me into the brick wall or they used a brick to hit me. It's unclear from the police report from the, uh, the witness, but I had a bad head injury and coupled with, you know, any, any other time I've been dung and, uh, I knew, okay, that was that, that forced that well, you know, I got hit <laughs> shit. I got hit in the head with a brick enough to well, I needed to go to get some therapy. <laughs> so everything happens for a reason, right? And I said, All right, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go try healing warrior hearts, which is uh uh kind of a three day weekend where you can work on specific issues, uh or, you know, components of who you are. You can open up and um that kind of alternative therapy uh scared me at first. But I found it to be so effective that I've I've continued to work with them and to 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 uh, staff and participate in other weekends because I want to give that experience that I received to other vets. I want them to have that kind of healing that that I got from that experience. What does that healing look like or feel like? Can you describe? For instance, uh, does it bring a certain quietude to you? Can, you, can here's a question. Can you be still? I I have moments I can be still now. I'm by no means a finished product. I still struggle. I'm still sitting in that fire. But I now can take a more outward view of where I'm at and where my mental state is and I can say, "Okay, I you know, I know why you're doing this self-destructive habit or I know why you don't want to speak to anyone today. And I can respect that. I can talk to it. I can ask it what it wants. And then I can move on. Uh, I, you know, yeah, there's good and bad days. But I accept that. And I know that there's going to be a tomorrow. And the idea of, of putting a gun in my mouth is far from my mind these days. And, and I wasn't always at that point. You know, it, it's uh, it's painfully ironic, isn't it, that for so many of us who were just craving some kind of peace of mind based on the turmoil that we experienced from our military experiences, the one thing that might have really assisted us in finding that, or at least some path to it, was to connect with other people and to share and to reach deep down and trust many of the things that you've done and are doing, and then uh, go forward from there because to get these things out into the light of day is just so vital. But the ironic part is that many of us, unfortunately, thought, no, the best way to deal with this stuff is for me to sit in the corner and drink myself into oblivion 
or just sit in the corner and, and not move. And it, it, that inaction uh, kept us from, it moved us way farther away from where we really needed to be for the sake of better health, didn't it? Absolutely. I, I didn't isolate like that. Uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about, I just need a cabin out in the middle of the woods, away from everyone, and I'll be fine. And, uh, I mean, that's probably not true, right? And for me, I was different. I am different. I wanted to shove myself back into society. I wanted to be around as many people as I could. I wanted all the friends and the accolades, and I wanted, you know, I wanted to be the guy everybody wanted to be. I guess I was fighting against how sad I felt inside by outwardly trying to be the most fun person to be around. Hmm. Let me ask you about Heaven's Gate Ranch. This is a therapeutic riding center, it's called, which I know there's a better description of it than that. Tell, what do you do at Heaven's Gate Ranch? So <clears throat> with my work at Healing Warrior Hearts, I, uh, I had achieved a significant uh, amount of healing. And I knew I needed to augment that healing with some, some continuation. And I looked at different things, and the vet center had different programs to go sailing or golfing or whatever. And they had this horse riding opportunity. It was free. Uh, we all know veterans love free stuff. Everybody loves free stuff. Veterans love free stuff more than anybody. <laughs> um, like, all right, well, I'll go. You know, it took me a while to get up there. I, I, you know, I did the paperwork, and it was kind of a far drive. And okay, you know, I'll get there. I'll get there. Then I started with the process, and um, I enjoy being around animals. I enjoy horses. I hadn't, I hadn't had any real experience with horses before then. I went to Boy Scout camp, did some horseback riding there, and been on a couple trail rides. And But, you know, who doesn't want to be a cowboy? So I'm like, all right, let's go try it. Um, and I found it to be an, a really great component of my healing. It's almost the cherry. It's the cherry on top for me. You know, it's, it's kind of like, oh, I did all that hard work of, you know, being open and being vulnerable and speaking and accepting and moving on from what I can um, and accepting what I can't move on from as a part of myself. Going riding is kind of like, uh, it takes a lot of concentration to stay in you know, to stay connected to that horse and to keep yourself moving forward and to keep yourself balanced. And that quiets the mind, you know, because you, you got to worry about that, you know, 1,500 pound animal under you, too. Um, and they can sense a lot of things. They can hear your heartbeat. And when you're riding them, they can feel your heartbeat through really? your legs. Yeah. They're a prey animal. A dog and a cat are predators. A horse is a prey animal. It's a herd animal. Their instinct is to get away from anything that's dangerous. There's no real reason why horses interact with humans. We feed dogs and cats. A horse doesn't need us, but they've stuck with us. And there's something intrinsic about it that's hard to encapsulate, that uh, that, that bond, that, you know, you could kill me. <laughs> you got these big, giant, powerful legs, and you could kill me if you wanted to. But you're willing to, to stand by me, and you're willing to let me climb on your back and tell you what to do, and, okay, now I want you to run. Now, now stop. You know, like, <laughs> imagine doing that with a dog, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. Very good image. So the, the ranch has given me a lot of things. And I'd be hesitant if I didn't say that what has kept me going back to Heaven's Gate is the people. Uh, our executive director, Margaret Mary, is such a kind, genuine, caring person. And um, my instructor, Monica, puts such a level of, of detail into what I'm doing that week. And Maggie Roberts uh, puts... Uh, so it makes the, the ranch, the environment so inviting 
that's why I go. The horse is almost secondary to the people, is secondary to the people to me. And having, you know, when I started, I was going every other, I was taking a half day off of work every other week and just going out there, getting in the country, leaving the city mm-hmm. and decompressing. And I found it to be effective and that's what's kept me going. It's funny, isn't it? Um, so many, so many veterans and, and, and veterans family members carry, um, powerfully difficult emotions. And um, in more and more stories that I hear, the truth is quite clear that to get at these difficult emotions, what's required is certainly some thinking, but mostly a lot of actions. And movement. Movement. You've got to move with it. Finding something that requires you to move and to connect with something or a number of things that you hadn't before, and the mind almost magically, it seems, begins to clear. That's why I went from participant to working at the ranch, is when you find what gets you out of bed in the morning, you got to go with it. And that has been very impactful in my life, to have a, a service job as opposed to Roofing and concrete, mm-hmm. dirty jobs, dirty work, breaking my body down. Well, now I work with veterans, I work with kids, I work with people with disabilities, and I can see an outcome in them. It's very uh, apparent when you make breakthroughs with someone. You, know, you, you can tell. So you've got a physical thing going here. You clearly have an emotional thing going and it certainly sounds to me as if there is a spiritual component. Yeah, absolutely. Being grounded, being you know, the natural world too, living you know, reality. You know, the, thanking the Lord for being alive and giving me this opportunity to be out here and influencing lives. Absolutely. You know, you you, uh, you look back over this landscape of memories that you possess, whether it was arriving in Kuwait, deploying into uh, Iraq. Twice, I'm sure you can remember smells. Certainly you can remember sights. All of those things. Uh, yet, and, and some of them, very difficult. Yet here you are today, talking openly. Did you expect you'd ever get to a point where you could begin to openly express some of the feelings that you have with us today and that I know you have in other venues? No. I never expected to be doing a podcast or a documentary or to be working in this field. It wasn't wasn't in my lexicon, you know. Like I was, I was, I thought I was going to be a fish and game warden, <laughs> you know. Like mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, something you said earlier about the feelings. Um, I've heard from a lot of veterans that they felt that they were instructed to stop feeling or that you know that the military numbed their feelings and i definitely feel there was a, a numbing specifically with uh killing there was a, you know there was some numbing to the gravity of that but it doesn't mean that you didn't feel quite a bit attached around that that emotion i feel like my combat experience made me feel more made me my emotions come up i felt my sorrows and my uh, my, you know, I felt my happy and my sad were amplified, not numbed. For me, I, I felt like I started hyper feeling the more I I had those combat experiences. I was more in tune. I, you know, like I, I would dial in uh, at times. And when the bullets are shooting, you're so dialed in. You're hyper aware. And I think that hyper awareness is is also spread to like you know my emotions. You know I could I could feel so intensely now, and um, so yeah, I guess I you know that that's what it is. You know, like you could be standing next to a, another soldier and doing the exact same thing they're doing, and they're going to have a different experience than you are. And that's kind of something unique to being a veteran. I feel is that it's 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 very individualized. 
And then in a different way, we've all been through the same shit. Um, yeah, the story is remarkably similar. Right. Yeah. But it's your story. Right. And then, you know, it's what you were feeling around, you know, what you were internally feeling around what, uh, what might have been forced upon you. You know, you, you're already you, and you're dealing with whatever has going on back in America or your problems with your chain of command or your, man, this soldier can't get right. And then something happens, and that, you know, that's, that's, that's not your choice. We're going to begin to move to wrap up our conversation, Ben, and I want to do, uh, well, I certainly want to point out what I think is pretty obvious, but that is uh, because I think it, it's a, such an important part, and that is the remarkable hope that you carry with you and that is just laced through so many of the things that you have shared with us today. To me, that is just a, a remarkable message for you to deliver to veterans and family members in our audience that if you don't mind me putting this in my words, that for all of the things that you have experienced, you can carry that hope forward and, and share it with others. But what I'd be just fascinated to hear is, you know that there are people, there are veterans, and there are veteran family members who are having a very difficult time. Would you be comfortable in suggesting to them what they might consider to try to move further on the journey of recovery from whatever emotions they are that are, are haunting them or troubling them so deeply. Well, if you're a veteran and you're in a place of that kind of deep conflict, the first thing you need to do is pick up the phone and call a buddy and you don't necessarily even have to talk about how you're hurting. You can talk about your last vacation or what you're doing this weekend. Or well, your sports team's good or it stinks, or you know what I'm saying? <laughs> sure, make the connection. Just, just talk, and don't you don't have to put such a heavy emphasis on how feeling as much as make that connection. That's a good start, and then once you kind of learn to sit with your, uh, you know, sit with the idea that you need some help, you gotta become unafraid of of that change, that scary thing out there. The, it's different, to, you know, of, of opening up, of, of, you know, saying that I got something I'm working on and not expecting that what happened, well, what happened in the military is you'd be ostracized. And I don't think the temperature in America any longer is you're going to be ostracized if you say you got an injury above the neck. <laughs> I think that the culture is shifting and the stigmatisms are breaking down. And I would encourage that person to think of themselves as I'm going to do this and maybe I break a stigmatism and I help someone else because we're much better at, at helping others than we are at helping ourselves commonly that it's easier to think about the group than it is about yourself. It's all team, 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 you know? Well, if you're not right, you can't help the team. Well stated. We've covered a bunch of stuff here. And I want to uh, thank you so much for your generosity and your courage in <laughs> sharing so many things. It's just a, a powerful um, experience to have shared this time with you. Is there anything that I didn't bring up or touch on? Please feel free to, to add that in before I kind of move toward a formal closing here. I, I wouldn't mind. So Heaven's Gate is a nonprofit we are completely funded by donors. No veteran pays a dime to, to, to be there. And uh, it's only because of the generosity of others that we're able to afford that service to veterans. Um, and uh, anything that could be contributed would be appreciated. Sure. I, w I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention that I have uh, a strong family structure. And a lot of uh, people I've interacted with in the veteran community didn't have such a, a positive uh, reinforcement around them. When I came home, my parents threw me a big party, and everybody came, and I got to show off my war trophies. And, 
I, you know, I was wearing my class A's and jump boots and maroon beret and look out, you know, and even that wasn't enough to keep me from sliding down uh, a dark path. And I didn't realize how hard I was being on my family by not taking responsibility for my own mental health. The pain I was causing my mother of just worrying about me, that my father's worried that I'm going to kill myself, that my brother's literally losing some hair (laughs) because he's worried his big brother's going to go away. And he spends so much time in the military being about service and others and everything that you kind of, when you get out, you know, it's all about you, you know. You need to remember that that there's a lot of people that care about you and taking care of yourself is, is taking care of them. Ben, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it has been. Ben Singleton is an Army veteran and uh, our guest today at our studio here in West Bend, Wisconsin. Um, as I mentioned, Ben joined the Army after high school and uh, served for just under seven years and uh, now works at the uh, Heaven's Gate um, Ranch. And uh, again, I, I want to thank you for all that you so generously shared. I'd like to encourage uh, veterans and family members, especially those who are struggling to as, as Ben said so beautifully, to reach out to someone, someone they trust. And uh, there's so many services available, and we sincerely uh, wish, well, the courage, really, and the opportunity to share those things that are, are painful or maybe just the time of day because that connection is so vital, uh, particularly if in any way you are feeling paralyzed. Please take care. Thanks for listening today. Thank you to our producer, Kerry Wheaton. On behalf of Mike Orban, this is Bob Bach. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast is made possible by grants from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation and the Wisconsin Energies Foundation. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.